you would open up your Bibles, please, to Matthew chapter 7. We're going to cover double the territory we did last week. Yeah, we covered one verse last week, we'll cover two today. (laughs) Matthew 7, verses 13 and 14, and in your books we'll be looking at the two gates. But I don't know that it's going to do you a lot of good to look at your books, because I'm going to probably get off of the the pathway that you, well, we're talking about the narrow path. I'm going to get off the narrow path. (laughs) So it'll probably be pretty hard. Yeah, I know. really shouldn't, but it's going to be hard for you to follow along in the books, probably. But we are on lesson number 50, correct? Is that the two gates? The two gates. Okay, before we begin, let's, let's read those two verses. Matthew 7, verses 13 and 14, where the Lord Jesus said, Enter ye in at the straight gate, for wide is the gate, and broad is the way that leadeth to destruction, and many there be which go in thereat. Because straight is the gate, and narrow is the way which leadeth unto life, and few there be that find it. May the Lord bless the reading and studying of his word. Well, with the all-encompassing statement of the golden rule, in verse 12, the Lord was finished with the body of the Sermon on the Mount. He was through spelling out the character of true kingdom citizens in the Beatitude Attitudes that we looked at at the beginning of this sermon in uh, verses 1 to 12 in chapter 5, and he was through giving his followers the true metaphors of, of salt and light to illustrate how those who live out the Beatitudes affect this world in which they live. And he was finished explaining the standards of righteousness that are holy, H-O-L-Y, and perfect and diametrically opposed to the self-righteous, self-sufficient, and even hypocritical standards of men, which were typified by Israel's religious rulers. We looked at that in verses 17 to 20 of chapter 5. He had also finished presenting his numerous examples of what this surpassing righteousness is like in regard to such subjects as murder and adultery and divorce, oath-taking, retaliation, uh, love, and in regard to such practices, religious practices, as almsgiving and prayer and fasting. He had told those who would follow him about the righteous attitude that they were to have toward material things, and that was what we looked at in the treasure rule. And he also told us about um, our attitudes that we're to have toward our, uh, uh, well, material things again in the worry rule, the treasure rule and the worry rule. And then he talked about our attitude toward our fellow man in the criticism rule and our attitude, our righteous attitude toward God himself in the prayer rule. And then he capped all that he had taught in the sermon, in the body of the sermon, with what? the golden rule that we studied last week, and it really said it all. It encompassed everything that he had said. So now he made personal application to all that he had been taught by saying, in effect, okay, that's it. I've given you the truth. Now what are you going to do about it? We've come to the invitation part, as you saw in my outline up there. We have come to the invitation part of the sermon. The introduction was the Beatitudes and the Similitudes, the main body, which very interestingly began in chapter 5, verse 17, with mention of the Law and the Prophets, and it ended with the Golden Rule in 7.12 that also mentioned, what? 
the law and the prophets. So the sermon was scooping together the whole Old Testament and teaching it the right way. And then we have the invitation, which is the last part. That's where we're finishing up in today's lesson. And the next two lessons, we'll be looking at his extended invitation as he talks about two gates, two trees, and two builders. So he gives us the invitation part of the most important sermon, most famous sermon ever preached. In verses 13 and 14, he began by giving his listeners and all future readers and studiers of this sermon like us, he gave them the choice of entering into his kingdom or not. Entering it or not. He brought the focus to the inevitable decision that every person must make. He had spoken a lot about the type of kingdom that he had come to establish. He had related to his audience how the kingdom of God is so entirely different from any kingdom that this world has ever known or will ever known, and that is, of course, because it is not a kingdom made of men, but it is a kingdom of who? Of God, a kingdom of God, a kingdom of unsurpassed love, a kingdom of justice and equity, a kingdom of holiness, a kingdom of true righteousness. So the rest of Matthew chapter 7 is an invitational, motivational application. You know, it is really a poor preacher or a poor teacher who merely presents the contents of some particular passage of the scripture and stops there. Do they do that? Oh yeah, all too frequently. That's a poor preacher or a poor teacher who does not invite his listeners to do something with what they have heard. Remember, we're to be doers of the word and not hearers only. The Lord Jesus refused to just let his listeners bask in the wonder and in the beauty of the great words and thoughts that he had just presented to them in the sermon. This is because he knows that admiration without action is deadly. To admire the scripture without action is, is useless. It's deadly. It's fatal. He knows that conviction without commitment will dull a person's spirituality. So he gives a long invitation. Our outline for this study of just these two verses is based on the number two. It's kind of interesting. It just consists of two, but twos are throughout this. We're going to see um, that although the world teaches that life presents to man many ways to live his life and even tries to convince him that there are many ways to enter into heaven, the fact of the matter is, the truth of the matter is, that there is only one straight gate and one narrow way to enter into heaven. One way that leads to life eternal. So in Matthew 7, verses 13 and 14, the Lord Jesus presses his point regarding the all-critical choice of selecting God's way to life by a series of four contrasting images. He speaks of two gates, the straight and the wide. He speaks of two ways, the narrow and the broad. He speaks of two destinies, life and destruction. And he speaks of two groups, the few and the many. Now, in your books, I have all these sections divided up for you very neatly, but for time's sake, we're just going to talk about all of these sort of in general. That's why you won't really be able to follow me too well. 
Our lives, as you well know, are full of all kinds of decisions, which we make every single day. You all had the decision this morning to get up or not to get up, didn't you? You had the decision on what you would wear. I decided to wear these giraffes for Terry. This is in your honor, Terry. <laughs> you had the choice of what you could wear. You had the choice of whether you would come to Bible study this morning, maybe. Some people didn't have that choice because they were sicker. I know the kids are home from school today, so that's why our attendance is down a little bit. Sorry about that, too. But we have to keep going. We've broken this study up so many times. I, we just have to keep rolling. Uh, you had the decision um, about where you would sit today in Bible study, didn't you? Now, some of you are such creatures of habit that you're just putrefied in your own pew. <laughs> but those of you with uh, some element of choice decided where you would sit. So we make decisions all the time. I mean, almost every minute. I'm making a decision right now about what to do with my hands, right? I mean, you know, even <laughs> subconsciously. Uh, and and um, a lot of our decisions are rather trivial. Other decisions of life, of course, are much more significant, such as what? Well, yeah, I'm going to get to that one. <laughs> like uh, who, you, who you would marry, or if you were going to get married, or what career you would have, or if you did, wouldn't have a career, if you would send your children to Christian school, public school, uh, home school. I mean, other decisions are, are much more important than where you're going to sit in Bible study. However, the most critical of all decisions is with regard to Jesus Christ and his invitation to enter the narrow gate onto the narrow way that leads to life eternal in his kingdom, his eternal kingdom. That is the most critical decision in all time and eternity. Is it not? Yes, it not only affects this life, it affects eternal life, our next life. So God in his sovereignty has always allowed men to choose him or not. His foreknowledge does not exclude free will. Let me make a point of saying that. His foreknowledge does not exclude free will. And predestination and foreknowledge are not one and the same things. He has also always pleaded with men to decide for him, warning them repeatedly of the horrific consequences of not doing so. What is his desired will? It is that all would come to repentance. It is not his desired will that any man should perish, but that all would come to repentance. Ever since mankind turned their backs on him at the time of the, the fall in the Garden of Eden, God has given every effort and spared no cost, including giving himself on man's behalf to persuade and woo man back to himself. He has both provided and shown the way to himself, and he has written it down for us in his eternal word. He has left nothing to us but the, the choice to make the decision. To Israel, wandering in the wilderness, the Lord told Moses to say to the people this, I call heaven and earth to witness against you today that I have set before you life and death, the blessing and the curse. And then he said, so choose life in order that you may live. Choose life. That's Deuteronomy 30, verse 19. After Israel entered into the promised land, 
Joshua confronted the people again with a choice, you know, to continue to either serve the false gods of the Egyptians and the Canaanites or to turn wholeheartedly to the Lord who had delivered them from slavery in Egypt and given them the land that he had promised to their father Abraham. Joshua said this, and you all know this because it's we have plaques on it everywhere. It's even on my doormat to my front door. He said, choose you this day whom you shall serve. As for me and my house, we shall serve the Lord, Joshua twenty four fifteen. On Mount Carmel, the prophet Elijah asked the Israelites, how long will you hesitate between two opinions? If the Lord God is, if the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal, follow him. That's in 2 Kings 18.21, or 1 Kings, excuse me. Jeremiah was commanded by the Lord to also set the ultimate choice before Israel when he said, Behold, I have set before you the way of life and the way of death. Jeremiah 21.8. And there's other passages in the Old Testament scripture which also make it clear that God gave man a choice. Ho, everyone that thirsteth. Come ye to the waters, giving man a choice. If you thirst, come, please come to me. So when the Lord Jesus set before his audience the choice to enter in ye at the straight gate and onto the narrow way that leads to life, it was the same call that God has been making to man ever since he first turned away from him. It is the absolute supreme appeal of the entire word of God. The choice is between the one and the many, the one right way, which is what? Straight and narrow, and the many wrong ways, which are wide and broad. Contrary to what some believe, this sermon is not just to apply to the future citizens of the millennial kingdom. And if you don't think that teaching is out there, then you haven't heard many people or read many books because there are a lot of people who say the Sermon on the Mount is not applicable to the church age, to you and I. Have you learned anything from it? I certainly have. But anyway, I don't believe that at all, that it just applies to the future citizens of the millennial kingdom because the truths that he teaches us are those whose essence God teaches throughout the Old Testament and the New Testament. They are truths for God's people of every age. And the decision about the gate and the way has always been a decision for every age as well. Now, I've already given you some examples of this all-important decision that was given by God to the people in the Old Testament. But there are others besides those in the, New, in the sermon that are found in the rest of the New Testament. For example, Jesus makes an appeal when he says, Come unto me all ye that are that labor and are heavy laden and i will give you rest is that not an appeal is that not an invitation come unto me and the lord said unto the servant this is in luke 14:23 go out into the highways and hedges and compel them to come in that my house may be filled and again it's an invitation they were to go out into the highways and byways of life and and compel people, you know, invite them to come in to his house, to the, the, king, the father's house. And this is in Revelation twenty two seventeen. I'm just giving you a few examples of the invitation that's throughout the scripture to choose God's way. It says, and the spirit and the bride say, 
come and let him that heareth say, come. It's an invitation, isn't it? And let him that is a thirst come and whosoever will let him take the water of life freely. I'm stressing all this because there is a big movement within the church nowadays that is going full time with this predestination that they're the elect and we have no choice in the matter whether we'll be saved or not. And I do not believe that. I believe the scripture definitely teaches God's foreknowledge and his sovereignty, yes, but also man's free will. That man does have a choice. Now, the picture, as some present it, is that of someone walking along the highway of life and suddenly coming to a fork in the road. Now, this is the, the, as some picture this. You know, you're going along. I had a picture of that a minute ago, didn't I? Something like that. Now, we're going to talk a little bit later about how that maybe isn't exactly the way that it is, but this gives you somewhat of an idea. All right, one road, let's say, goes off to the left since God puts the goats on the left, I'll say, goes off to the left, and it is very, 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 very broad. The other road goes off to the right, but it is extremely narrow. However, before the person can enter onto one or the other of these two roads, actually, he is automatically on the broad road. He's already on the broad road. The only exception to that being those under the age of accountability. They're really, it's so hard to explain some of this, but they're really on the broad road, but if they died, they would go to heaven under the age of accountability. Babies, you know, go to heaven. So I don't know where you'd put them if you say they're on the broad road, but in God's grace, he he takes them straight to heaven. So that's the only exception. Otherwise, everybody's already on the broad road to destruction. In fact, there is not a single hindrance to entering through the wide gate you have to pass through the wide gate before you get to the wide road but you're already on the wide road but you pass through the wide gate i guess at the age of accountability and it stands wide open so there's no hindrance to entering through it the road the person is on is actually it actually simply continues right on past the wide open gate so that all people if left naturally to their walk will go right on through it, right on past that wide gate. The the gate is so wide that thousands upon thousands can enter past its widely swung open doors at any given time. Thousands abreast could even pass through the wide open gate. And there is plenty of company all along the way through the wide gate. In fact, it appears to be the only gate to enter because there is so much growth around it and so many people entering through it and so much activity going on. So the point is that a person doesn't even think about another gate, really, much less look for one. The wide gate is wide enough to include everyone, so it has great appeal. All philosophies are accepted, all beliefs, all appetites and passions, All liberties and licenses, all sin and selfishness are permitted to go right on through. No one is kept out. All can enter. There's no one standing at the gate to keep you out. Anyone can enter. And nothing, here's good news, not really, but nothing has to be left behind. This gives the wide gate entrance great appeal. Because not only is it the popular route... But everyone is bringing in all kinds of excess baggage. 
and even pulling U-Hauls <laughs> loaded with all kinds of, uh, of works of the flesh and pleasures with them and passions. They are marching in full of adulteries, fornications, uncleanness, lasciviousnesses, idolatries, witchcraft, hatreds, variances, emulations, wrath, strife, seditions, heresies, envyings, murders, drunkenness, revelings, and such like. I took that right out of Galatians 5.19. So they're, you know, they can bring all this excess baggage right in with them. Now, the natural inclination of man is to follow the crowd. Thus, many go through the wide gate onto the broad way. Many that admire Christ who are on that broad road. Um, but the inclination of man is to follow the crowd. So many go through the wide gate onto the broad way, which, of course, they were already on. <laughs> they just keep on marching. It's, so, as I said, it's very difficult to even see the straight gate, which is just another word for narrow. Narrow gate, narrow way. It's very hard to see the narrow gate because it is so extremely narrow. In fact, one commentary suggests that to see it, one must, and I like this, one must turn from the wide gate and following the crowd and almost pull themselves against the activity and the attractions from around the wide gate to get over to it, to get over to the narrow gate. But it's not enough to just get to the narrow gate. It is not enough to just even see the narrow gate or even to stand there and admire the narrow gate. The command of the Lord Jesus is what? In verse 13. Enter, which demands a specific action. See, so many in Christianity who just stand there and admire Christ, as we were talking about earlier. Um, but they don't put action to that admiration. You know, he says, to as many as received him, to them gave he the power to become the sons of God. It's a it's a, a reception. It's an invitation, and we have to invite him in. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If any man open the door and invite me in, you know, I'll come in. <clears throat> so it's not enough just to stand there and admire the gate. There are many people who have read the Sermon on the Mount and have greatly admired it, including Mahatma Gandhi. You've all heard of Gandhi. <clears throat> he used to read it, the sermon, in its entirety to his people at least once a year. He greatly admired the teaching of the Sermon on the Mount. Yet he remained his whole life a strict Hindu and rejected Jesus Christ. All, you see, although Gandhi praised Jesus as a magnificent teacher, he did not enter through the narrow gate. He, he stayed on the broad road that led him to his destruction. The world is full of people like Gandhi who say that they respect Jesus Christ and his teaching and even his life, but they never enter through the straight gate that leads to life eternal because they do not accept him as their Lord and Savior. And that's the sad status of our church today, um, worldwide. You know, so many people in churches have never, ever accepted him. And uh, the most tragic thing of all, we'll be looking at this in our lesson next week as we look at verses like 20, 22, 23, 24. The saddest thing of all is that so many will one day, as they stand before Christ at the final judgment, will stand there and hear him say, I never knew you. Depart from me, 
And, you know, they'll have said, Lord, Lord. They were just those who stood there and admired the gate and never entered through. And by the way, who is the gate? We'll get to this a little later. The gate himself is Jesus Christ. What exactly does it take to enter the narrow gate? Well, we studied this last year when we looked at John chapter 3. Except, except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Sorry about that. I'm behind again here. A person enters the narrow gate by stooping, stooping, okay, stripping. I won't do that for you. <laughs> stooping, stripping, and struggling. He must repent of his sins, which involves stooping, okay, realizing one's spiritual poverty, poverty of spirit, bowing down in humility before Christ and what he did on one's behalf. You see, the gate is not just narrow. We could also say that it's short. It's narrow and it's short. To get through it, one must become as a little child by stooping down in humility, confessing sin and one's need for forgiveness. To get through the narrow gate, one must also not only stoop, but strip, strip down. He must put off the old man. Third, a person must struggle. He struggles against the flesh that doesn't want the narrowness of God's way. You see, according to the word of God, there is only one gate into heaven. To not make the decision to enter through that narrow gate means that a person automatically chooses the wide gate. Indecision and a failure to commit oneself to either way. You know, if you say there and stand there and say, I'm not going to choose either one. Indecision or a failure to commit to either way is still fatal. Why? Because we are all born with the sin nature. So that after the age of accountability, we are automatically on the broad road to destruction. The only way off of that road is to pass through the narrow gate, which is, as we just said, really Jesus Christ himself. He said, I am the door. We could say, I am the gate. He said, I am the door. This is in John 10, 9. If anyone enters through me, he shall be saved. The Bible tells us that if we are not for him, we are what? Automatically, even if you don't make a decision, you are automatically against him. So even passive resistance is still resistance. And even indecision is fatal. There is no alternative. It is either that one chooses to enter in at the straight gate or he automatically passes through the wide gate to destruction. If there is one word to, to describe the righteousness that has been laid down for us in the Sermon on the Mount, it would be the word narrow. Haven't you felt? I mean, from the very beginning, it started getting narrower and narrower and narrower on us. You know, at the beginning, when we first started, you thought, Oh, this is going to be okay. I'm not a murderer. I'm not an adulterer. You know, da-da-da-da-da. But, whew, by the end, was it narrow. We were all convicted. So if there's one word that could describe it, it would be narrow. The righteous living for the Christian is far more narrow than the broad standards for living allowed by the world, where anything goes. Does anything go out there? <clears throat> oh, yeah. Such words as narrow now have never been accepted by the world. 
but they, I think, are particularly offensive to those of this century, wouldn't you say? Oh, they just, they hate the narrow-minded, the, the conservative right, call us intolerant, narrow-minded, you know, because this, in this century, uh, the worldly wise, the tolerant individual is the one who is my, admired. Of course, they tolerate everything except born-again Christians. <clears throat> they say, call me proud, call me mean, call me wicked, but whatever you do, do not call me narrow. Now, it is not, it is not the narrowness <clears throat> of those like the scribes and Pharisees that we should be labeled for. We don't want to be labeled as narrow as they, the scribes and Pharisees, were labeled narrow. At all costs, we should avoid being accused of being called narrow for self-righteousness' sake, you know, because we come across as self-righteous, or um, due to inflexibility on our part over non-doctrinal issues. Like uh, the pastor who visited a small denominational college back in 1870. This is a true story. pastor visited a small denominational college in the year 1870, and he became furious with the president of that college when, when the man made the remark that in 50 years it might be very possible for men to soar in the air like birds. The pastor said to him, he said, quote, flight is strictly reserved for the angels, and I beg you not to repeat your suggestion lest you be guilty of blasphemy. Well, as we know, God has a great sense of humor because 33 years later, not 50, but 33 years later, that man's two sons, Orville and Wilbur, <laughs> by the way, the pastor's last name was Wright, <laughs> made the world's first flight from Kitty Hawk, North Carolina. And I was just there at Thanksgiving. And I, was, I really enjoyed the program that they gave to us as they talked about all that Orville and Wilbur Wright went through to have that first flight there at Kitty Hawk. I mean, it took years and years and a lot of hard work, and it, oh, it was difficult. But I was so excited to find out that the two were Christians. Their daddy was a pastor. He was rather narrow-minded, but I wonder what he said after his, his sons had the first flight. But he ate his words. So anyway, we Christians must avoid being labeled narrow for reasons of ignorance and self-righteous piety. On the other hand, we must embrace the narrowness that the Lord's words speaks of here in reference to salvation. There is only one gate through which to enter. There is only one way of salvation and life eternal. It says clearly in the scripture, neither is there salvation in any other, for there is none other name under heaven given amongst men whereby we must be saved. But what name? The name of Jesus Christ. It also says there is one God and one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. Furthermore, there is a narrowness with regard to our affections, for we are to love the Lord our God with what? All of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. We are to put no one else above him or equal with him. So there's narrowness in salvation. 
there is a narrowness in our affection, and the same should be true for our conduct. All things are not okay to do. There are things that we should not do. There are boundaries. And it's wonderful because in these boundaries, we actually find freedom. You know, the things you leave behind are really the things that are bad for you anyway. So in our, in our boundaries, we find liberation socially. Guess what? I don't have to be bound by social categories. I, I mean, if we look around this room, we come from all kinds of different social backgrounds. We come from different parts of the country, maybe even different parts of the world, right? We're not bound by who we fellowship with. The brotherhood is worldwide. It's wonderful. We're not bound by race. We're not bound by, by um, uh, sexes, man or woman, etc. We have freedom in our boundaries. The only free man and, or woman is, is really the one who walks the straight and narrow. You know, when you're on the broad road, you're really a slave to sin. You're not free at all. The Lord's invitation is perhaps the most important part of the entire sermon because it concerns the vital issue of getting on the right road. The narrow gate is so straight and so narrow <clears throat> that a person must actually enter it alone. Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones suggests that it is like a turnstile. Now, how many of you have ever been like to Disneyland or SeaWorld or one of those places where you have to go through the turnstile? You know what I mean? Metal and you walk through and it, it either goes this way, sometimes they swing this way. But only one person at a time is allowed through. <clears throat> People do not enter into the kingdom of God in groups. Just because someone may belong to a particular church... That whole church doesn't automatically get through, or a particular denomination, <clears throat> or it does not mean that everyone who is part um, takes part in certain rites or rituals or has performed some of the ordinances of the church automatically has access to, to heaven. Heritage and nationality, um, you know, the Jews actually believed in, uh, in racial salvation, you know, except for the really, really bad Jews who were murderers and adulterers, they believed that if you were Jewish, you were a chosen per people and you would get into heaven. That's racial salvation. Not by way of surgery either, you know, by way of circumcision. Uh, the entrance into heaven is not by way of self-explosion and martyrdom. You know, if you kill yourself, if you blow yourself up, you're going to automatically get to heaven and have um, seven virgin brides for all of eternity to enjoy. Although it is not God's desired will that any man should perish, and although he, his offer into his presence is open for everyone, yet every person must come individually by his own decision, his own personal decision. Don't you wish you could just will other people into heaven for you, for them? I sure do. That would be great if I could just drag them along with me. But you can't, we can't do it that way. Each person has his own responsibility. He has to make his own choice. Every individual must, by faith, accept Jesus Christ as his or her Savior from sin and enter into heaven through him. Now, the Lord Jesus, as we know, doesn't pull any punches. And he certainly didn't pull any punches in this first part of his invitation. He tells us right up front, 
that the Christian life is narrow. Not only is the gate narrow, but the way is narrow as well. The gate is narrow and the way, the path, the road is narrow. The gate is so narrow, back to the gate, the gate is so narrow that one cannot carry any baggage through it with him. The baggage of our lives must be left behind. The turnstile, so to speak, is too narrow. You ever try to get one through one of those even with a pocketbook sometimes? You know, not that easy. <laughs> so what do we leave behind? Well, for one thing, we leave behind the crowd. We make a break with the world, with the majority. The narrow way is not the popular way at all, is it? The wide gate is the popular one because anyone can go go through it with as much baggage as he wants, and he can go through it with all of his friends, all his buddies. To go through the narrow gate, therefore, involves leaving the crowd. Often it involves leaving loved ones who prefer um, the life of the broad way. It's difficult, and it's against human nature to fight peer pressure. Not only for our young people is that difficult, but you know what? We fight it too, don't we? We, we conform to peer pressure all too frequently. It's, it's difficult. It goes against human nature to fight peer, peer pressure and to not conform to the majority of people around us. Most people do not like to be different. Oh, some of them like to look different, <laughs> but that's really because they're looking different with the rest of their companions and buddies. They're, they're, they're really conforming to their, their friends. They, they look different to us, and we look different to them, but we're conforming to each other too, aren't we? <clears throat> You'd be pretty shocked if I came in here with some wild spiked orange hair or something, wouldn't you? <laughs> so I'm really conforming. <clears throat> it takes courage, and it takes genuine faith to walk through the narrow gate and say to oneself, it doesn't matter to me what others are doing or what they think of me, or even if my family forsakes me. You know how many people around the world have their family forsake them when they become a Christian? Terrible. The person has to say to themselves, they have to have courage, they have to say, I I am individually responsible for my own choice about my future destiny. We need to each realize that we are going to individually stand before Christ one day either at the judgment seat or, I hope nobody will, but at the great white throne judgment. hope nobody in this room ever stands before the great white throne judgment. But one way or another, we're going to stand before Christ as eternal judge. And it won't matter what our parents did. It won't matter what our spouses might have done or our friends when it came to this ultimate choice or what the majority of people did. That None of that will matter. When, you know, when we stand one-on-one before him, he's going to say, what did you do? Now, we won't be asked that question if we're at the judgment seat of Christ because he'll, he'll already know what we have done. But it only matters individually was what I'm going to say. So many people don't accept Christ because they're afraid of other people. What will they think? What will my parents think? What will my spouse think? You know, and I want to go with them. And so many think that they're, well, I'm just going to go with my buddies and enjoy hell together forever, which is ridiculous because hell is so dark and so miserable that it's a one-on-one thing. You don't have any fellowship in hell. There is none. 
It's just one's personal misery throughout eternity. There's no partying going on in hell. Well, another thing besides the majority that we must leave outside the narrow gate as excess baggage is self. It's difficult enough for a person to leave the world outside, but it is much harder yet to leave self. Paul told us that we are to put off the old man. We are to leave him outside the gate. All right, so we're to put off the old man. And, of course, this illustration is not totally perfect when I say, you know, when we get to the narrow gate, we have to put off the old man and leave him behind because we know that even once we have entered onto the narrow way, what do we do? We struggle our whole life with the old man. Um, but still, as we've learned throughout the sermon, we, di- we do discover that in God's kingdom there is no place for self. So we need to continually be putting off, continually be putting off the old man, the carnal nature, which is actually the exhortation in the Greek, continually put him off or her. <laughs> actually, entrance into the kingdom begins where the Lord's sermon began. And where did it begin? Look at Matthew 5, 3. Or two, is it? Three. It began with being poor in spirit, understanding our spiritual bankruptcy, dying to self, knowing that apart from the grace and the forgiveness of God through Jesus Christ, we can do nothing. If anyone considers entering through the narrow gate because they think that it will be easy or that it will be a chance for him or her to be praised or honored or perhaps even an opportunity to make a great name for himself or herself, he had better stop and count the cost. It is not an easy life. It is a narrow, difficult life. Few people are willing to to shed what is necessary to get through the narrow gate. Alexander McLaren, who was a great preacher about 100 years ago, used poetic license to picture the first two beatitudes as the side posts of the narrow gate. The first two beatitudes. I don't know if you can see that here. I've written it sideways. (laughs) Um, One side post, he would teach, denotes the first beatitude, which is poverty of spirit. And the other side post of the narrow gate denotes the second beatitude, which was mournfulness over our, our sin. And that's a good picture. The narrow way never broadens, no matter how far one travels down it. It never gets more and more broad. In fact, the further down the narrow road, the more narrow it seems to get. The closer to Christ one grows, the more you realize your poverty of spirit, right? And the more you mourn over sins, even the seemingly small sins, the more you mourn over them. So instead of the narrow road getting broader, it actually gets narrower until we are at one with Christ in glory. It's so narrow, we are exactly like him. The standards of righteousness, as we've learned during our extended study, how long have we been on this? seems like years, (laughs) our extended study of the sermon. These standards are very difficult. All of us would admit that. It means living a life patterned after the Lord Jesus himself. And that is not easy. And it is not without pain and suffering and toil. But then nothing 
with such a glorious, wonderful reward at the end comes easy. Is it easy for um, an Olympic gold medal winner to earn that gold medal? No. Nothing that is worthwhile at the end is easy. It takes a lot of discipline. And yet this, the Sermon on the Mount, life, is the highest life ever described as even being possible. And because of that, it is a difficult and it is a narrow life. It is a narrow road. And few there be that find it because so few care to leave so much of their worldly baggage and self behind. And so few are willing to walk so straight a path. And so few are willing to suffer for righteousness' sake. A lot will suffer for unrighteousness' sake, but not many are willing to suffer for righteousness' sake. And few are willing to be rejected by the crowd or by their peers, by the seemingly intellectual and noble and wealthy of society, or to be misunderstood perhaps even by those dearest and nearest to them. The narrow way for so many, and Jesus says that it's many that go on the broad road to destruction and only few that choose the the narrow way, right? Those are his own words. The narrow way for so many, millions upon millions and millions down through the ages, requires too much effort, too much discipline, too much self-denial. Some get right up, as we talked about, they get right up to the straight gate And then they can't help but look back at all the neon lights and the entertainment spots and the seeming fun that the crowds on the broad road are having. And what do they do? They turn back and they stay on the broad road. They get right up to the narrow gate. They can't help looking back. Oh, I don't want to give up my alcohol. Oh, I don't want to give up my this and my that. And they go back, my friends. Some get right up to the straight gate, but as they look past it onto the narrow road, they see the restraints and they see the discipline and they see the loneliness. Sometimes it's lonely being a Christian. And they see the spiritual warfare, which they don't have on the broad road because Satan has them right where he wants them. So there's no spiritual warfare going on on the broad road. And they see all that and they turn away to remain on the broad road. The broad road, you see, is much more appealing to the natural man. It's easier. It's attractive with many pleasures to feed the flesh. There's no restrictions placed on one's life such as found in the Sermon on the Mount or the other teachings of the New Testament. There are uh, no restraints. Sin is tolerated. Pride can definitely stay intact. There are no absolutes. It's tolerant of all, except born-again Christians. Uh, Muslims and Hindus and Jews and Mormons and Buddhists and New Agers and deists and polytheists and atheists and agnostics and secular humanists and those from every other religion that I didn't mention, and cult and philosophy, guess what? There is room for all on the broad road. Now, they might be going down that road clustered together in their own little group, but they're all on the same road that leads to destruction. 
There are even those, as Terry mentioned earlier, who admire Christ on the broad road. There we go. Many that admire Christ, sad to say. Liberals, those who don't believe in the inspiration of the scripture, those who, even though they call themselves Christians, deny the virgin birth and the deity of Christ and the atonement and all sorts of things. There is not a single hindrance to keep anyone off of the broad road. In fact, all people, as we said, are born on it already. All continue on it, not even thinking about or seeking any other gate unless they happen to hear a still small voice, the voice of the good shepherd shepherd calling out, enter ye in at the straight gate. And who hear his voice? His sheep hear his voice, and they enter the fold. But to do so, they must do a turnabout. They must, they, they must do an about face. And I actually like this picture better than the, the crossroads or the fork in the road. Some say that the narrow gate is not easily seen because it is in the opposite direction that one is going. And that's a good picture because what is repentance? It's a total turnaround. I do. It's coming up. I do have a picture of it. I do. You know what I think is interesting, and I don't know if I can say this to you uh, very clearly, but I was thinking about all the pictures we have of this. Jesus Christ is on both sides of the door. You know, um, he is not only saying on one side of the door saying, enter ye in at the straight gate, but he stands on the other side of the door knocking. You know, if any man here might, he's on the outside, he's knocking, and we have to open the door and let him in. He's on both sides of the door. And guess what? He is the door. He himself is the door. He is the gate. Not only that, but he is the way. And not only that, but he is the life at the end of the way. (laughs) Is he not all in all? He's the good shepherd. And guess what? He's also the lamb who died for all shepherds. Wow, it's amazing. He is all in all. And as the good shepherd, he leads those who are on the narrow way. He leads them all the way to the end. The way may be narrow, and it may have enemies on all sides. And it has valleys to descend, and it has mountains to climb, and the journey may be lonely, and the journey may be full of all kinds of trials and tests. But there is always the sure hope of victory, for with Christ as our guide... The pilgrim traveling down the narrow way cannot fail but to reach the celestial city. This is a picture, by the way, if you've ever read Pilgrim's Progress. Pilgrim is making his way to the celestial city down the narrow way. There's all kinds of trials and tests and, and distractions, but he has the sure hope of victory because who? It, what does the shepherd do? Does he drive his sheep? He leads them. You know who drives? Pushes? Off the end of the road to destruction, Satan. Satan doesn't guide, Satan pushes. But the good shepherd leads. He goes before and he never leaves us, nor forsakes us. I'm way behind, so let me catch up on this. He never leaves us, and at times, you know that poem, Footsteps or whatever it's called, 
At times he even does what? At times he even carries us. But our destination is sure. On the other hand, those on the broad road have no one to guide them except false shepherds. And we're going to talk about false shepherds, Lord willing, next week. Who are themselves deceived about where they are going. They may sincerely believe that the broad road is the right road, but guess what? They're wrong. (laughs) They might be sincere, but they're wrong. There is a way which seemeth right unto a man, but the end thereof are the ways of death. The broad road ends in destruction. Some people on the broad way think that this life is the only life that there is. So they might as well get all the gusto out of it that they can. You know, live it up, eat, drink, and be merry, and there is no afterlife. They don't believe in an afterlife. However, the Greek word used here for destruction is a word that does not mean extinction or annihilation. It does not mean extinction. Instead, it is a word that is used to mean ruin or loss. It is not the loss of existence for all souls of all men will live forever. Nobody's soul is ever extinguished or annihilated. All souls of both saved and unsaved live forever. Rather, what this word destruction means is that it is the loss of well-being. They are on a road that will lead to the total ruin of their well-being. Actually, even as a person walks along the broad way, he is said to be perishing. The way of the wicked is an abomination to the Lord, Proverbs 15, 9. There is no real satisfaction as one walks down the broad road. There is no inner peace. There is no contentment of life. There is no sure hope of heaven. Yes, many of them are disillusioned with a hope, but it is not a sure hope because it is not real. It is a deceptive hope. What gain is there for many of them on the broad road who just live from one round of pleasure to another round of pleasure? What gain is there in living for self only? Is there any gain in living for self only? What, for what shall it profit a man if he shall gain the whole world but lose his own soul? What gain but a momentary passing glory is there in becoming monetarily successful or in having your picture in the society column of the local newspaper? Who really cares? And who really remembers? There's no real value in the temporary acclaims of man. If we analyze the lives of those who are on the broad road to destruction and we consider what it is that they live for, and especially if we consider what awaits them at the end, we're going to find that their lives are utterly empty under all of the pomp and ceremony and even under all the religious ritual that so many of them engage in. In their hearts is fear. In their hearts is much bitterness sometimes or jealousies, selfishness, hatred, guilt, all these things we've been looking at in the Sermon on the Mount. Those who walk down the Broadway are under a heavy load They have uh, taken, remember, all their baggage with them as they walk down 
the, um, the broad way. And their heavy burden of sin and guilt go right along with them. And there is no one available to be their burden bearer. However, for those who choose to enter through the straight gate onto the narrow way, Christ immediately removes from them their heavy weight of sin and guilt. Remember Pilgrim with the pack on his back? I showed you a minute ago. And the one who removes that big heavy weight of guilt and sin is who? Jesus Christ. His precious blood washes away their sins and they're forgiven and they're cleansed and the burden of guilt is removed because he took it all upon himself and died in our place. He not only took our burden of guilt, but he became our burden bearer who helps us, as we said, in our walk down the narrow way. He helps to us to bear the burden of persecution. He helps us to bear the burden of loneliness, the burden of obedience to the difficult standards of righteousness. He takes the heaviest part of our yoke upon himself as we walk side by side with him. He makes our burden light as we learn from him how to be meek and lowly in heart. He gives us confident rest for our souls, even in the midst of all the turmoils and struggles as we go down the narrow way. The narrow way is totally fulfilling. It is. It's fulfilling. It provides freedom, as we talked about. It provides joy, and ultimately it leads to life eternal. There is no abyss at the end of the narrow road, as there is on the broad road. You see, the broad road here, I don't have much of a picture of it, but it's got all the shining neon lights and everything. But where does it end? Into the abyss of destruction, people falling off by the thousands <clears throat> the message of the Bible from beginning to end for man is to consider his latter end, to consider the destiny of his eternal soul. To live for this life only is tragically foolish since this life is but a drop in the bucket compared to eternity. Paul tells us that the broad way leads a man to shame and to eternal misery and the loss of his well-being. The wages of sin is death, eternal separation from God, not extinction. The way of the transgressors is hard, Proverbs 13, 15. If we ever get weary, do you ever get weary in your well-doing? I do. If we ever get weary in living the Christian life, if we get frustrated sometimes, as I know we do, with the narrowness of this way that we are on, we just need to stop, think, and listen. We need to remind ourselves of the destination that awaits us as Christians and then compare it with the destination that awaits those who appear to have it so much easier on their broad road. Do you ever think like that? Yeah, I, I catch myself self doing that a lot, you know? And I, and I have to remind myself right away, this life is hard. I spend hours and hours and hours at my desk every week, and there are things I want to be doing, and I think, oh, you know, some of those people out there are playing tennis and golf and having a good time. And then I remind myself of the difference at the end of the road. We should not be envious of them and the good times they might look like they're having, 
or the wealth that they may have accumulated or the things they may have accomplished in the way of fame or popularity or having their picture in the paper or their position or their power, etc. Rather, picture them on their deathbeds when they can no longer enjoy anything that this world has to offer or engage in any of its pleasures. Picture them as the world continues right on its merry way, surging right on past them with hardly a second glance, leaving them virtually all alone to die. There is no good shepherd to hold their hands as they go through the valley of the shadow of death. There are no angels sent by God to escort them to heaven's awaiting glory. What do they have as they lie there dying? What? They have nothing. They have no hope unless it's a false one. They have no joy, only sorrow. They have fear, and rightfully so, because the broad road leads to destruction. It leads to eternity in darkness and endless suffering, separated forever and ever from all that is good, from all that is holy, from all that is light, from all that is well-being, separated forever from God and his Son and God the Holy Spirit. Compare that with what awaits the Christian. We are destined for life, for a glory that is indestructible, for a glory that uh, fadeth not away, that is incorruptible. It's reserved in heaven for us by who? By God himself. It's very, 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 very sad that only a few according to the Lord's words. And the older I get, the fewer I see it really is. That only a few choose the narrow way. Very tragic. There can be no neutrality. You are either on the broad road leading to destruction or you are on the narrow way leading to life. Jesus Christ said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh to the Father but by me. That's narrow. But truth is like that, isn't it? Truth is narrow. I always give the example of how many answers are there for two times two. One. Only one answer is right. Oh, am I narrow-minded. Yeah, but that's the way truth is. Now, if I could make it another way, I probably would have. I would like to say always lead to God because that would mean my father is in heaven. You know, that that would be wonderful, but that's not the way it is. I'm not God, and that's not how he did it. He did it only through his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. You will never go through the narrow gate just by accident or just because you're born into a particular family. You will never go through the narrow gate unaware of having gone through it. You know, in Luke's parallel account, this is very interesting, You know, Luke has written bits and pieces of the Sermon on the Mount, but they're scattered throughout Luke's gospel. In his parallel account in Luke 13, 24, he has the Lord Jesus, when he gave this invitation, saying, now the Lord spoke this sermon, bits and pieces of it, on more than one occasion, so that doesn't mean his contradicts Matthew's account. But on another occasion, when Jesus was giving this invitation, he said this, strive to enter through the narrow door. And the Greek word is agonizo. What do you hear? Agonize, 
agonize to get through. Whatever it takes, get yourself through that narrow gate. You must enter it thoughtfully and you must enter it purposely. It is a decision. And it is the greatest decision of all life and eternity and it is one that nobody can make for you. Have you, everyone in this room, have you entered in? Have you entered in? This day I call heaven and earth as witnesses against you that I have set before you life and death, blessings and curses. Now choose life so that you may live. Lord, thank you for sending Jesus to make this life possible. If there is anyone here, Lord Jesus, who has not accepted your way, the narrow way, I pray with all my heart, Lord, that they would invite you in and that they would enter through the straight gate that leads to life. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.